to your attention. Uh, we are uh, this morning continuing um, in our sermon series called Jesus and the Least. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. And um, th- this is a very famous passage called the Beatitudes. And we'll talk about what that means, the Beatitudes. And this is uh, an introduction, Jesus' introduction to his greatest sermon that he's ever preached, which is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are the Beatitudes, which is the text that we're reading here today. Uh, so Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, there will be text on the screen as well. And if you could, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word out of respect for, for God's Word. This is Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. There are passages throughout the Bible that are great passages to go to uh, to argue why you should become a Christian. Right? There are there's certain passages in the Bible that, you, that I would maybe take you to to say, here's why you should become a Christian. But in this text today, perhaps uh, more than any other text in the Bible, Jesus is showing us how to be a Christian. Uh, he's showing us what it looks like to be a Christian. What does it look like for someone who says, I'm a Christian? What does their life Look like, and then, as I mentioned, this is uh, the intro to Jesus's most important sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he's kicking off that sermon with this passage about these blessings, and this passage is called uh, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Now, the term Beatitudes, I actually found found this out for the first time uh, this week, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, we use this term, the Beatitudes. And the, the, that word, Beatitudes, comes actually from uh, the, the Latin Vulgate, which was kind of a Latin translation of the Bible, which just simply comes from the word blessed. I thought it had to do something with, like, attitudes, like, some, like, are these, like, you should be these certain attitudes? That's not like what it, that's actually not what it, it's just the word blessed, just the term blessed. So blessed situations is, is a, a way to understand this. And the Sermon on the Mount is for those who, as we saw, are in bad situations, not those with good attitudes. So let's just clear that up, right? It's for those in bad situations, not those who have 
uh, good attitudes. He says, if you paid attention, like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted, right? Blessed are those who are in bad situations, not necessarily those with good attitudes. Now, what does this word blessed or blessed mean? Have you ever thought about, like, what is Jesus saying when he's saying blessed are uh, these, these people? I, I think one way to think of it is, is divine well-being, a kind of divine thriving. Uh, to say that, uh, that every part, to, to desire that every part of a person's life would be made more richer, more meaningful, more satisfying, more enjoyable. Uh, to, to desire for someone to have a holistic thriving, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual thriving. And so, for example, when Jesus talks about uh, hey, when others curse you, to not return a curse for a curse, but to bless those that curse you, what Jesus is saying, for example, in that context, is to say, hey, when others desire that you don't thrive, when others desire a curse on your life, when they hope for your failure and they hope that you don't thrive, instead of wishing that back on them, your heart should desire actually that they thrive, right, Holistic, holistically. You should return blessing, a spirit of blessing back to them. And in this context here today, in this text that we're reading, what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of heaven, his blessed kingdom, the kingdom of physical, emotional, relational, spiritual thriving, belongs to and is coming for a certain kind of person. And we, what we can't miss in this text, because it wasn't missed on the original listeners, and so we can't miss this either, is that this flips earthly currency on its head. In the pronunciation of these blessings, he's completely flipping currency, earthly currency on its head. What, who does our world prescribe thriving and blessing to? Right? Who, who, do, who do we say thrives? It's, it's the rich. It's the powerful. It's the connected. It's the networked. It's the strong. It's the conquerors. It's the, it's the go-getters. It's the gifted. It's the talented. This is who our world pronounces thriving and blessing on. And Jesus is coming in and saying, uh, actually, my kingdom is different. I'm pronouncing a different person that's going to thrive. And there's no other way to say it other than he offends their sensibilities as to what it's going to look like for the Messiah, the Christ, to come. Because their Jewish understanding, right, they were waiting for a Messiah to come. They were anticipating a kingdom of God that was going to arrive with tanks and flamethrowers, right, to come with, uh, with, with force, power, and might. That's the kind of Messiah they were anticipating. And a, a, a Messiah that's going to come with brute strength, overthrow the conquerors with his, his authority and power and strength, and then give it to them, the strong, the mighty, the overcomers, the conquerors. And so Jesus immediately, right out of the gate, as he's pronouncing these blessings, you know, opening up his intro to his sermon, he immediately offends that sensibility with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's painting what uh, many of us and many theologians have called the upside-down kingdom, one that looks completely different than any earthly kingdom. He's offending their understanding of what a good, beautiful kingdom should look like. And while we don't have time to go into depth with each and every uh, blessing, 
Like even if there's so many of them, if we were even to take five minutes to go through each blessing, we would be way over time. Uh, But what I do want to do is take kind of a high-level overview just so that we uh, have a quick understanding of what these blessings are, okay? So, uh, and and what what they signify. So the first one in verse 3 is, he says, poor in spirit, poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, one of the things that we do when we're reading the Bible is that we, we look for other passages in the Bible to help us interpret what is before us in the text that we're in. And so actually in Luke, in Luke's account of this, ta- of this uh, occurrence, because Luke also wrote about these, uh, these blessings, Luke just uses the word, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the financially poor. So certainly, uh, when it says poor in spirit, it's absolutely referencing uh, the, the poor, those who financially don't have means. But beyond that, Matthew kind of uh, expands that definition by saying poor in spirit. And what does he mean when he's saying poor in spirit? He's meaning those that are in a hopeless situation, those who are uh, humbled, marginalized, outcast. Yes, they could be poor, but it's people who are in a kind of hopeless situation. And in fact, uh, most theologians agree that blessed are the poor in spirit is kind of the... um, the, the one blessing that encapsulates all of the other blessings. All of the other blessings all kind of point back to this one overarching, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who find themselves in a hopeless situation. And in fact, this word poor, by the way, comes from a Greek uh, verb, uh, which is the verb to cower, to cringe. Uh, and so Jesus are saying, Blessed are those who are poor, certainly, but also blessed are the hopeless. Blessed are the pathetic. Blessed are those who find themselves in a situation where they cringe, where they cower. Blessed are those who have lost in life and they know it. Eugene Peterson says of this text that Jesus is saying, Blessed are you when you are at the end of your rope. And then in verse 4, he says, Those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. This is those who are poor in joy. Blessed are those who are poor in joy. They've experienced great loss. It's the lonely. It's the brokenhearted. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are poor in joy. Verse 5, he says, blessed are the meek. Uh, Blessed are those who are poor in power and authority. They're poor in power and authority. The, the, The meek are not people who are able to use or use power, authority, and influence to get what they want. So blessed are the meek, those poor in power and authority. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in verse 6. These are people who are, have a sense of being hungry for righteousness. They feel empty of righteousness. They desire, they hunger and thirst for righteousness because they sense a void of righteousness inside of them. They're poor in righteousness. Uh, they, they are the people that struggle, right, and fight to do the right thing. Like the Apostle Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, I do what I don't want to do, and I, and I don't do what I, you know, should be doing. Like, ah, I'm torn here. I've, I've got these things that I know I shouldn't be doing and I, things I should be doing, and I'm, I'm struggling here. I'm, I'm trying to pursue righteousness. I have a hunger for right living even in the absence of it. Uh, verse 7, he says, uh, the merciful. And this is where Jesus switches over from those who are poor in something 
to those who are rich in something. And so in verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful. These are those who are rich in grace. These who are rich in compassion, rich in mercy. Then he says in verse 8, Those who are pure in heart. These are those who are rich in being centered and focused on God. Uh, their vision isn't uh, like diluted with other things. The poor in heart are people that care more about what's going on inside of them and, and, the, and, their, and how that's relating to God. They're, they care more about being pure of heart than they do having like this clean exterior that impresses everybody, right? They care more about what's going on inside of them than the image that they're projecting to everybody else, the pure in heart. In verse 9, it's, we've got the peacemakers, uh, these are those who are rich in reconciliation, those who are rich in forbearance, rich in forgiveness. Uh, these are quite literally people who make peace, right, where there is none, where it lacks. Uh, then he says in verse 10, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, these are those who are rich in faithfulness, even when it costs them something. Rich in faithfulness, even when they're persecuted, even when it costs them something. Verse 11, uh, rich are those who are reviled and persecuted. And he says, on my account, right, for me. Uh, in verse 11, these are those that are rich in their love for Jesus, even when it costs them something. So above and beyond being rich in their faithfulness, they have also a desire, a love for God, a love for Christ. Um, even when it costs them something. And then in verse 12, he encapsulates it all and says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, and, uh, you know, theologian Dale Bruner says of this text, I think that these are the most significant words ever spoken. Their simplicity is deceptive. There is gold under this ground. That's intimidating to me to see uh, another theologian say that of this text. Uh, I don't want to uh, overcomplicate the simplicity, so I hope to traffic in something that's simple, but also uh, help us mine kind of this gold that he's talking about. And so today, as we explore the simplicity and see the gold, to use his kind of analogy of gold, I want us to see kind of three golden truths uh, that, that I think Jesus is getting at in this text. Three golden truths. Uh, the first truth is that the blessings are a grace. That's the first truth. The blessings are a grace. The second one is that the blessings are beautiful. The blessings are beautiful. And the third one is that the blessings are Jesus' shadow. The blessings are a grace, the blessings are beautiful, and the blessings are Jesus' shadow. So let's, let's look at this first truth. The blessings are a grace. So again, this is the intro to the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus is doing before he ever gets to calling anyone to do anything at all, before Jesus ever gets to saying, here is what you should be doing, before he ever gets to that, his opening introduction is to pronounce blessing. We can't miss that. Blessing comes before he's asking us to do anything. Before anything has been done, you are blessed. It's not a blessing to those who have earned it. It's not a blessing to those who have overcome. It's not a blessing to those who have pulled themselves up uh, by their own bootstraps those who, or those who have succeeded. No, it's a pronouncement of blessing and, and grace in an, in an earthly sense to those who have failed the hardest and know it. 
The Sermon on the Mount, again, is for those who are in bad situations, not those with good attitudes, and yet blessing is still being pronounced on them. And some have said that the the Sermon on the Mount here in the Beatitudes begins in the valley. Uh, And on Jesus' authority, human beings in deep sadness and in bad situations are in God's hand more than any other time. The blessings are a grace. Right? If, if, if blessing is thriving, then Jesus is pronouncing to those uh, who, then Jesus is pronouncing that those who thrive in the kingdom of heaven may be the very ones who do not thrive on earth. Uh, the cursed, the, those who are not thriving on earth, may indeed be the ones who are blessed in the kingdom of heaven. And so these blessings are Jesus proclaiming a kind of grace to the least of these, a grace to the poor in spirit, a grace to the hopeless. And grace is simply undeserved merit, right? Grace is not something that we earn. Grace is undeserved by definition. It's undeserved favor. Grace is undeserved generosity, And so by Christ proclaiming these blessings to people who haven't earned it, and by Christ proclaiming these blessings before he ever calls us to do anything, we see here that these blessings are a grace. Now, here's the thing that that I think we also can't miss. Who are the very people who would, in this life, look to God, look to heaven, and say, God, why aren't you for me? What is going on? Why aren't you for me? Who are the very people who are most likely to to look to God and say, God, why aren't you blessing me? What is going on, Lord? It's the very people that Jesus is pronouncing blessing towards, right? The poor, the beaten down, the marginalized, the abused, those who are suffering, the persecuted. These are the people who are most likely to say, God, why aren't you for me? Why aren't you for me? Um, and, and so it can be hard if you're in that place where you are the, the poor in spirit. You are experiencing a kind of hopelessness, uh, whether it's a physical thing, uh, a financial thing, a spiritual thing. If there's a kind of hopelessness, you can be that very person who looks at this and is like, what is he talking about? I don't see it. What, where are the blessings? Now, don't laugh, but this actually, uh, this, this paradox makes me think of the movie Home Alone. Home Alone. Um, now, first of all, well, how many have seen the movie Home Alone? Like, every hand should go up, because if you haven't seen Home Alone, like, are you even American, right? Um, but secondly, the, the movie of Home Alone has this super covert story of grace that I think talks about, like, what we're, we're talking about here, this story of grace. Uh, and I, So I want to talk about the movie, and spoiler alerts are ahead, but if you haven't seen the movie... You've only had like 30 years to see it, okay? So here's the story of Home Alone. Kevin, played by Macaulay Culkin, is an eight-year-old kid. And the movie begins, of course, in this, this chaotic world where his family and all of his relatives, his cousins, his aunts and uncles, and they're, all their family is together in this chaos, and they're planning uh, this massive vacation trip to Europe over Christmas. Uh, but... Every story has to have like a bad guy, right? And so quickly, uh, the narrative kind of shifts and all of the, the cousins and the kids, they're looking out the window and they see 
Old Man Marley. Remember, right? Old Man Marley. And there's rumors about Old Man Marley, right? There's all these terrible rumors about what he does. And, uh, and so Kevin in particular is terrified. He can't even look upon Old Man Marley without shaking. Well, as we all know, uh, and again, you know, this is a kind of, if you haven't seen it, sorry. Uh, Kevin is accidentally left behind, right? Home Alone, you should have figured that out, kind of, by the title. He's left behind, right? And all of the chaos, and all of the chaos, and all of the people, they all accidentally board the plane and take off for Europe while he's left home alone, and he wakes up and realizes that everyone is gone. And at first, initially, right, now he's, he's thrilled. It's the kingdom of Kevin, and, and so he starts, you know, eating all the food he's not allowed to eat, all the, all the ice cream and candy and everything that he wants to eat. He's, he's living for himself, right? Uh, he's watching all of the bad movies, you know, all the R-rated movies that he's not allowed to watch as an eight-year-old. And what he doesn't know is that there's two burglars, Harry and Marv, the wet bandits, right? <laughs> This is serious, right? When, you, when you're like a 10-year-old kid, you're like, whoa, the wet bandits, right? The wet bandits. And they're scoping out all these homes on this street, you know, that are going to be empty over the holidays. And, uh, and so initially, they're kind of scared away, right? They're kind of scared away because they see some lights on in the house and they think, oh, you know, somebody's, they must be home. They must not have left. But then upon you know, a little bit more investigation, the wet bandits discover that, uh, that actually, it's Kevin, and he's home alone. And so they devise their plan of even with him there, you know, super scary, even with him there, they are going to uh, take the house and they're going to burglarize it. And so Kevin becomes kind of aware of their nefarious plans, and so he begins to kind of prepare himself to defend his home. And he eventually finds comfort by going to a church, and he's sitting in the church, and he's listening to a choir sing, a choir practice taking place. Uh, and as fate would have it, old man Marley comes into the church. And at first, Kevin is afraid. Right? He looks at the old guy, and he's kind of afraid. And old man Marley says to him, you can say hello when you see me. You don't have to be afraid. And, and so then so he softens a little bit. Kevin begins to soften a little bit, and they strike up a conversation. And old man Marley asks Kevin, have you been a good boy this year? And Kevin says, I think so. And old, the old man, Marley, says, do you swear to it? And then Kevin says, well, no. And the old man says, I had a feeling. <laughs> and then the man says, well, this is the place to be. And so they share a moment where they're kind of vulnerable with each other, but ultimately, rather than Kevin totally trusting the man uh, to save him and confiding into him what's going on, he eventually decides to leave the church and to go uh, on his own. And so Kevin devises his perfect salvation plan, uh, the way in which he will rescue his home and himself from the clutches of the wet bandits. And sure enough, right on time, uh, they show up. And, you know, Kevin's got all of these tricks. He's got all of these traps for them. And, and he gets them good. He, he gets the upper hand in most of the interactions. But even though he has worked so hard and so brilliantly for his own freedom in this and salvation, in the end, they catch up to him and he can't save himself. He's captured by the wet bandits. He's all out of tricks. And so the bandits grab him and they hang him up like on a door 
And then they start devising the ways of how they're going to now torture him uh, because of what he has done to them. And, uh, and just like a good children's movie, right at the point of where Harry or Marv, I can't remember which, pull out a knife and decide that they're going to start by cutting off Kevin's fingers. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's where they're going to be. Right at that point when they're ready to do that, and it's the end, right? What happens? Old man Marley shows up. He appears out of nowhere with a snow shovel. He whacks the bad guys on the head, right? And they're knocked out cold. And then he, he picks Kevin up. And in a calm, grandpa-like voice, he says, come on, let's get you home. It turns out that the one who initially seemed to be the most against him was the one who was most for him. Right, the one that he should have been trusting all along. And I think Jesus is communicating that to the broken, to the vulnerable, to the poor. That just when it seems that God isn't for you, he is. Just when it seems like the earth and, and heaven and everything in between belongs to the rich and to the powerful, to the mighty, to the conquerors, that God is going to come, he's going to take it, and he's going to give it to the weak, to the least of these. The blessings are a grace. The second truth is that the blessings are beautiful, and they're beautiful, and it's, it's a building thought, they're beautiful because the blessings are a grace. Right, Jesus, as we said, has, is flipping the currency of the, of the kingdom upside down. The first will be last, and the last will be first. It's this upside-down kingdom of grace, but it's also a kingdom of beauty. And, and the blessings are beautiful because the gospel is beautiful. The, it's a gospel of grace. If the blessings uh, are portraying the gospel, and they are, because we, we believe in a gospel of grace, a gospel of unmerited favor, where God says to all of us that the gospel, the good news, is that I have come not to condemn you, but redeem you. And the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to give up myself for you. I'm going to give you, you sinful people, I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to take your sin upon myself, and I'm going to die the death that you should have died. And so we believe in a gospel or a good news of grace, of unmerited favor from God. And so the blessings here that Jesus is proclaiming are a reflection of that gospel, that good news. And because of that, they're beautiful. Grace is beautiful to us. When we see grace, uh, it, it stirs in our heart. And, um, and, and moreover, I think that Matthew is really trying to drive home as he's writing these, these blessings, this, these beatitudes, I think he's intentionally trying to draw our hearts to the fact that they're not just, a, not just a blessings of grace, but that they are blessings of beauty. And the reason why I, th I think that is because if you look in your, if you've got your Bible and you've got it opened and you look at Matthew 5, you'll notice that the Beatitudes or the blessings, they're, they're kind of formatted a little bit differently in your Bible. They're not, they're not formatted like the surrounding text. It almost looks like they're in poem form. And that's because they are. Uh, these Beatitudes, Matthew was writing using characteristics of Hebrew poetry to specifically appeal to his Hebrew audience. It's, it's not just, right, it's not just grace, it's art is what he's trying to say. It's beautiful. It's trying to draw you in with both grace and beauty. So Matthew is, is intentionally, as he's writing that, trying to captivate not just our hearts with grace, but also our hearts being drawn to 
uh, beauty. And so uh, there's on one hand, right, where the blessings, especially for those of us who are self-sufficient and find ourselves in positions of power and authority and influence, there's a sense in which this upside-down kingdom would offend our sensibilities in the same way that it offended theirs, right? It's like, really, Jesus? Like, you're gonna, like, I'm, I've worked hard for everything that I've got and, and, and everything that I have, for all the wealth that I've accumulated, and you're just gonna bless the poor for, for, for no reason at all? Like, or what kind of kingdom is it where I'm supposed to forgive my enemies and be a, and be a peacemaker, what kind of upside-down kingdom is that, Jesus? I'm supposed to forgive the people that have offended me and hurt me? That's what I'm supposed to do? Come on, Jesus. Right? That, that could be a legitimate response that we find our heart kind of resisting the grace part of all of this. But I think that the beauty element is added in there because I think the beauty is, is compelling. Right? It, when, we see, when we see the glimpses of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, when we, when we uh, experience that kind of beauty, we can't help but recognize this is beautiful and this is the way that it should be. Able, should be. Right? Not many of us would probably say that all of the world experiences that we have, that all of earth is beautiful. Certainly, we would look at, at uh, we would say that uh, the way that, our, that money works in our world is probably not beautiful. The way that power and authority and influence often work in our world is not beautiful. But occasionally, we see it all flip upside down, and then we say, oh yeah, we, we, we cap- capture just a brief glimpse of the beauty of the kingdom of heaven, the blessings, the beautiful blessings, uh, and we see that, and then we're like, oh yes, this is beautiful, this is compelling, this is the way that it should be. Uh, in 2008, uh, there was a boy named Miles Scott that was born in Tula Lake, California. And at the age of 18 months, he was diagnosed with leukemia. At the age of five, the San Francisco chapter of Make-A-Wish Foundation got his wish, which was to be the real Batman for a day. Okay, that was his wish. And so the chapter sent out uh, a request to supporters expecting that they were only going to get a couple of dozen uh, supporters And that was okay. They were fine with that. Like, we'll get a couple of dozen of adults to kind of play along with him uh, while he, for a day, and help him, you know, pretend that he is the real Batman. But the request went viral, and people from all over America and even the world uh, began to kind of collaborate on how they were going to make this wish epic. And so there were, initially, there's going to be some pictures that will kind of be up behind me as I talk, but there were uh, several hundred people that began to uh, collaborate on how they were going to pull off this wish. And so uh, they, were, they were tasked with costumes and makeup and Batmobiles and villain roles and a damsel in distress. And I mean, they, they went all out. The local mayor uh, got involved with uh, pre-recorded videos that were going to be sent on this like projector that's like strapped to his arm. And, and they would project the mayor saying, you know, Bat Kid, you're our only hope. Can you save us? You know, and, and he was getting a police escort throughout the city. And uh, literally then tens of thousands of people from all over the world flew in to help participate in gathering at the various locations where this uh, boy, Miles, was going to be at. 
in San Francisco. And at the end of the day, there's this big ceremony, and he's given the, the, uh, the key to the city uh, by the mayor in a celebration event. The event was, was uh, streamed live uh, on Twitter and then received uh, coverage by Fox News, The Guardian, The Washington Post, The LA Times, NPR, Huffington Post, USA Today, New York Times, ABC News, Time Magazine, Good, Good Morning America, and many more. Every single one of the living actors that had ever played Batman sent him uh, notifications, videos, encouragement through the Twitter feed that was set up for him. Even Barack Obama himself, who was president at the time, sent out a video saying, you know, good job, Miles, thanks for saving the city of uh, San Francisco. Most of the services were donated. Uh, the amount that had remained just the leftover that had gone unpaid amounted to a tab of $105,000, and that tab was picked up by one generous donor. And the whole event is now captured in this brilliant documentary called Bat Kid Begins. I highly suggest you go check it out. Now, my question is this. What in the world is going on with something like this? What deep, heartfelt truth are people tapping into with something like this? Is it the truth that the powerful eat the weak? Is that what everybody's celebrating? Is that the truth? Is it the truth that only the strong survive? Is that what got everybody going and everybody excited and compelled everybody to show up? Or was it that the broken and the least of these are blessed and made much of? that the failures of life flourish, that the broken are blessed, that the wrecked are redeemed, and that, that when that happens, that we get this glimpse of the kingdom of heaven touching earth, and we say, even if it's just for a moment, oh, that's beautiful, that's beautiful, and that's the way it should be all the time. Hell is silenced in the presence of that kind of beauty, wasn't it? Cancer was silenced just for a day, in the presence of that kind of beauty. People witnessed the power, like the upside-down kingdom. The thing that was compelling and beautiful was that they witnessed the powerful and those with authority and those with influence and those with money bend the knee to bless a broken boy with cancer. And everybody said, this is good. This is beautiful. And, ah, if it was only this way all the time. So in these blessings, we don't just see a kingdom of grace. We do see that. But we also see this compelling, beautiful kingdom. The blessings are beautiful. And then the third truth is that the blessings are Christ's shadow. Christ embodied all of these. He embodied all of them. Uh, he was born marginalized and poor. Scripture calls Jesus the man of sorrows. Jesus was persecuted. He was reviled. Jesus was meek. He didn't come with flamethrowers or uh, he didn't come with like laser vision to zap his enemies. He came as a vulnerable baby in a mortal body. He was pure of heart. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He showed mercy. See, Jesus is showing us that the kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that is unlike anything we have ever seen or experienced because the kingdom and the blessings of the kingdom are sourced in the king. The gracious and beautiful kingdom has a king 
who is also gracious and beautiful, and his name is Jesus. And these blessings are Christ's shadow. The law, right? The law, and it's, these blessings are, again, a reflection of the gospel and a reflection of this gracious, beautiful king. And the law shows us our sin. The law shows us our sin, but the gospel, these blessings, show us our Savior. And what Jesus, Jesus is really saying in this text is this, that those who embody the lowliness, the brokenness of the gospel, those who embrace the poorness of spirit inside, because we, we, we all are hopeless, maybe not financially, but spiritually, that when we embrace that, that we then have the eyes to see the blessings. And Jesus is saying, and they'll not just be blessed and be part of the kingdom, but they'll also see the king. They'll see me. And so if all of these things are true, if the blessings are a grace and the blessings are beautiful, and if the blessings are Christ's shadow, if this is showing us an upside-down kingdom, then if we are truly Christians, we must begin to uh, become an upside-down person. And I see that uh, happening in two ways that, are, that kind of go uh, with each other. First of all, uh, we must become the least of these if we are to see this grace and beauty by emptying ourselves as modeled by Christ in the cross. We must become the least of these. And then secondarily, right, we, we don't just become the least of these, that's, that's part of it, but we also must become ministers of these blessings, ministers of the grace and the beauty. And so we, what I want us to, as, as we kind of close here, I want to ask ourselves the question, what kind of kingdom, what kind of blessings are we looking for? Right, the kingdom of earth is one where we acquire, we hoard, and as best as we can, we try to pay for all the things that we acquire and hoard with the blood of others who get in our way. And the kingdom of God, on the other hand, is one where we give it away by giving away ourselves. We saw the, the Care Portal video today, right? We have mercy ministry. We're aware of these things. You know, as a church, I have to ask ourselves, are we building our kingdom or are we building uh, the kingdom of heaven? We could stop doing all the mercy things, right? If we were about our kingdom, we could stop doing ministry in, in the realm of mercy. We could say, you know what? All of the dollars and money that we're spending on Care Portal and to feed the hungry and we could, to do all these things, we could hoard all of that for ourselves. We could spend all of that time and money to make all of our kingdom better. Or what we're choosing to do collectively is to empty ourselves, our wallets, our time, whatever resources that we have, our talents, our gifts, to empty ourselves of these things to build a kingdom of heaven. Right? The kingdom of God is happening in Middletown. The kingdom of heaven is here in Middletown. It's, the question is whether or not we have the eyes to see it. Right? When we give a kid a bed so that he's not taken away from his parents and put in a foster care system, when we give a kid a bed so that he can, they can stay as an intact family unit, that is the kingdom of heaven. When we give a family food for the week, that is the kingdom of heaven. When we give a, a, a child shoes so that he's not going to school with wet feet, that is the kingdom of heaven. This is kingdom work. And, and we, uh, we identify with the least of these as we empty ourselves of our 
whatever God has given us. Whatever God has given us, we empty ourselves. And then we also must become ministers of this grace and beauty, right? The invitation isn't just to be meek and be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is, but it's also to be the blessing that Christ is talking about. And so as we, as we go into communion here, I have some questions for us. Um, you know, when Jesus broke the bread, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when he took the cup, he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, he emptied himself in order to bless us with his righteousness and in order to take on our curse, to take on our sin. There was a great exchange and and it was a tremendous blessing to all of us. And it cost him his body, it cost him his blood, it cost him his very life. And so in a moment, as we come forward and take communion, part of it for us is going to remember that the blessing wasn't free, that in order for Christ to reach into our hopelessness, and pronounce this kind of blessing to the poor in spirit, all of us. Um, it cost him his life. But moreover, Scripture also says that if this is true, that there is a kind of worship response that takes place in the heart of a believer. Right? There is, there's a, what the Bible calls a spiritual act of worship. And that act of worship is to become a living sacrifice, is what the Scriptures say. A living sacrifice. So you may, you may never be called to give up your life as a martyr for God, right? That's probably true for most of us here as Americans, like living in a country where we have freedom of religion. It's, you're probably never going to be called on to be a, uh, a martyr, but that doesn't mean that you don't have a life to give up. And indeed, as an act of worship based on what Christ has done for us, we become living sacrifices who empty ourselves out to be the least of these, to identify with the least of these, and to bless people with the grace and the beauty of the kingdom. And so when we come forward here in a moment, um, that is what we are going to remember, both what Christ has done for us and then therefore the act of worship that we must be compelled into. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, when the band will come up, and then when you're ready, you can go, go ahead and come forward and take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or juice as your conscience permits. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. I thank you that he is a gracious king, that he's a beautiful king, and that he's inviting us into that kingdom when we haven't earned it. Father, there's a room full of us here that are poor in spirit. We might not be financially poor. Maybe we are. Maybe we are in a kind of hopelessness in an earthly situation. And I do believe, Father, that this text does speak into that. But moreover, all of us come here today spiritually bankrupt. I pray that we wouldn't come to you assuming that we have anything, but that you would give us the eyes to see how poor we are, but not how necessarily hopeless we are because of the blessings that you're proclaiming to us. Father, I pray that we wouldn't attribute to you a kind of um, ill intent for us, bad intent for us. Give us the eyes to see the good that you have for us, the blessings that you have for us 
as we gaze through the lens of the gospel and the lens of the cross. And help us then as a response to what you have done and the ways you've blessed us with your very own body, that we would become living sacrifices for the surrounding community, our neighbors, our friends, our family, strangers. I pray these things in your name. Amen.